speak uh, to us. So Hebrews uh, chapter 3 this morning is where we're at. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19 of Hebrews chapter 3. Verses 12 through 19. Be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The message this morning is take care that your faith perseveres. Take care that your faith perseveres. Perseveres. Can a believer lose their salvation? Is it possible for someone to come to faith in Christ and then walk away from that faith? As I said last week, we all know of people that have made a profession of faith in Christ and maybe even got involved in ministry and maybe were active in the church. Maybe even some people that have become pastors in a church but have then later walked away from the Lord, and today they are far from him. Is this person saved? In our hearts, we want to say, yes, they are saved. Once saved, always saved. That's our motto. But then we come across passages of Scripture that make us hesitate and make us stop and wonder if they really are saved or not. And, And add to this that American Christianity has boiled down salvation to walking an aisle and saying a prayer, which is something that we don't find anywhere in Scripture. Now, to be clear, there are three camps of people when it comes to the person I just described. The first camp is known as the camp of Arminians. If they are going to be a consistent Arminian, they would say that that person I described Um, was saved and lost their salvation. So they're no longer saved. They, They see salvation as a human decision. So you can believe to get into heaven or you can deny your faith and that puts you out of heaven. However, I believe that view is clearly um, spoken against in scripture. It's not defendable. According to John chapter 10, according to Romans chapter 8, which both promise eternal security. So that belief... We know, well, that can't be biblical, but there's two camps of believers that hold to the view that you can't lose your salvation. Some will say that you do not need a persevering faith to have a secure faith. These people live by the motto I quoted just a minute ago. Once you're saved, you are always saved. They would say that if you hold to a belief that says your faith must persevere, then you are requiring works for salvation. And if salvation depended on persevering faith, then no one would ever be assured of salvation. And so this camp says that all that matters is that a person once placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Again, that's a decision of human decision. It's not a gift from God that regenerates the person, but it is their faith that regenerates the person. And once a person expresses their decision of faith, then they receive all the blessings of salvation no matter what. So you can walk away and you can say, I don't want those benefits, but it doesn't matter because once you placed your faith in Christ, you get them no matter what. 
How you live after your faith decision has nothing to do with your eternal destiny. I also reject that view as not being biblical. There is a final view. It's a view that we often find in Reformed theology. This view says that saving faith is a gift from God. It's imparted from God to us when he saves us. Salvation originates with God and is totally dependent on God. Since God's promises are complete and since he promises to complete the work that he began in us to the praise of his grace, all of God's elect will persevere no matter what in their faith until or unto eternal life. This view, which is the view I hold to be true according to scripture, holds to the view that there is such a thing as a false faith. It holds to the view that you can have a profession of faith, so you can profess faith but not possess faith. So they can, someone can make a false profession of faith and later fall away from faith. And that's a demonstration that their faith was never genuine in the first place. However, true saving faith by its very nature perseveres. And because of that, it is evidence that our faith comes from God and not from man. Now, notice what I am not saying. I'm not saying that a faith that perseveres is automatic, nor is it effortless. Because God not only ordains the end, but he ordains the means to the end as well. And as you have heard me say many, many times from this pulpit, we say God is sovereign in salvation, but it does not negate human responsibility. God does elect every person he will save, but the elect are responsible still to repent and believe. Even though God promises to save all of his elect, we are still encouraged to persevere in our faith. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are not in opposition to one another. On the, uh, uh, the author of Hebrews here, as we look at Hebrews chapter 3 and as we look at these verses in particular on his mind is that person who starts off well in their Christian life, so to speak, only to fall away and forsake the Lord. And when someone falls away, the actual explanation is not that the person was saved and then they fell away, but the actual explanation is that person was never saved in the first place. And so persevering faith is not a way that keeps you from losing your salvation, but rather it's a way that we demonstrate that we are saved. When we are saved, we never lose it, but our salvation and security of that salvation is not a decision. Your security of your salvation is not that I can point to a decision that I made in the past or that I said a prayer in the past that I look way back when, when I was young, but your security in your salvation is dependent on the power of God to keep you hoping in him even into the future. My security is knowing that God who began a good work in me will complete that good work no matter what. So what is the evidence of a persevering faith? What is the evidence as we look at this passage of scripture why should we take care that our faith perseveres well first of all persevering faith avoids the sin of unbelief look with me at the beginning of verse 12 of hebrews chapter 3 it says take care brothers lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart the author is saying brothers he's calling them brothers because he's addressing the church and he's saying that it is possible for them to have an unbelieving, an evil, unbelieving heart that would cause their departure from the living God. So he's talking to the church and he's saying, hey, some of you in the church may have an evil, unbelieving heart. Listen, if I ask you to list sins for me this morning, if I said, hey, let's list some sins this morning, you would have no problem rattling off sins like murder and stealing and lying and that sort of thing. You would know what sins are. If I asked you to list the worst sins that you could possibly 
think of. You would probably have no problem uh, rattling off the worst sins that you could think of. You know, things like rape or child molestation and mass murder. Terrible, terrible sins. The point is that none of those or on none of those lists would we immediately think of the sin of unbelief. If I ask you to list sin, I doubt the first thing that's going to pop in your head, unbelief. It's not what you're going to say. But yet here he tells them to take care. They don't have a heart of evil and unbelief. And there's people in the church that act like salvation is this thing that we do one time. And suddenly we're free from the danger of unbelief. And they said, well, when I was eight years old, I walked an aisle and I said a prayer and I'm free from going to hell and everything's okay now. Because that's what the culture, that's what American Christianity has said salvation is. You walk an aisle, you say a prayer, and you're good to go. So persevering faith avoids the sin of unbelief. You perhaps would say, well, how do I avoid that sin? And I believe that if we're going to avoid that sin, we must first understand it. We must first understand it. So understanding the sin of unbelief. Now, if we, we think of the sin of unbelief as no big deal, or if we decide that it is just a small sin, or if we think that it's really no sin at all, and we're, uh, then we're in trouble. Why? Because we won't be on guard against it. If I came running into the sanctuary here, and i got to find a deacon to pick on. If I came running into the sanctuary, and I was like, uh, I, guys, I just saw Ray Vandenberg out there jaywalking. Right? You don't care about that. That's no big deal to you. Because he's not in danger really himself a whole lot. And he's not hurting you. And so it's no big deal. Now if I told you, hey guys, I just saw Ray Vandenberg out there in the middle of Peoria Street out here. And he's, he's out there trying to direct traffic. And, and cars are stopped and people are swerving and, he, and, and people are wrecking and crashing their cars, then you'd be concerned about that. Well, at least I hope you would be. And perhaps you would try to make an effort to go out there and stop him because he's doing something that's not really healthy. It's the same way with the sin of unbelief. If we think it's no big deal... We don't guard ourselves against it. And here's what I'm convinced of. Is we don't understand how terrible of a sin unbelief is. And so therefore we don't guard against it. Because it's just, nah, no big deal. So let's look how terrible. I'll give you some things real quick. So we understand this sin of unbelief even better. The root of all sin is unbelief. The root of all sin is unbelief. Now I, may, now, I know you may find this hard to believe, but the sin of unbelief is behind every other sin we commit. I don't know if you caught what I did there, but anyway. Um, I want you to think back to Genesis. We're in a garden, and Satan tempts Eve, and what does he say? Did God really say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? What is he saying? Do you really believe what God said? Listen, if people really believed God, then they wouldn't practice sin in the first place because they would know that to practice sin would incur judgment on them because they believe God. And they, they would say, well, then God's going to judge me because I believe him. But because they don't believe God, they practice sin anyway. The root of all sin in our life is unbelief. The reason you sin is because you don't think that there's going to be real consequences. Because you don't believe what God said. And that's the root of all sin in our life. Not only is it the root of all sin, but the sin of unbelief will harden our heart. The sin of unbelief will harden our heart. Look with me at verse 13. The warning is that they will not have a hardened heart. Look again at verse 15. The author citing from Psalm 95 once again and giving a warning about hardening their heart. The sin of unbelief 
hardens the heart against God's standard. The hardened heart causes us to grow callous to sin. And before you know it, we commit sin and our conscience no longer convicts us of that sin. And we just commit it without even, without even feeling bad about it. It's like when we have a, a, a wrong addiction in our life, right? We start off with maybe a little bit and before too long, you no longer feel anything and you have to get more and more and more. And, and that's the way the sin of unbelief works in our heart. It gets harder and harder, and soon we sin without even feeling it. Unbelief hardens the heart. Thirdly, unbelief threatens the people of God. Look at verse 13 again. We are told to exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. We need to encourage each other every single day to avoid the sin of unbelief. Our faith may, may have been strong yesterday, and it may have been strong last week, but perhaps today it's a weak faith. Perhaps today we're struggling, and so we encourage one another every single day. Will you trust God today? Will you look at Him in faith today? Will you turn from the world today? Will you turn to Him today? Do you trust in His promises today? What the world has to offer today, or what God has to offer today? Unbelief threatens the people of God. That's what it does. To be clear, believers can fall into the sin of unbelief as well. In fact, we have records of that, right? David, he didn't trust the promises of God. Remember that? He didn't trust that he was going to be king. And, and so he thought he would perish one day at the hand of Saul. And so he decided that he was going to flee to the land of Philistines. And, and, uh, Got him in all kinds of trouble. Peter was in a boat. Jesus told him to come to him. And he began to sink because he got distracted. He didn't believe. Listen, the point is just, just that. Because you are a follower of Christ does not mean that you are not susceptible to unbelief. Be on guard. Because it threatens the people of God. But fourthly, unbelief is deceptive. Look again at verse 13. That none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is just plain deceitful. What does it mean to be deceptive? Well, it means that it's causing someone to believe an untruth. That's what sin does, right? It looks good. It tastes good. It feels good. But it enslaves and destroys. It fools us into thinking that it's going to help us. That if, that, that, that if, if, if we do that, then and somehow it's going to benefit us. And that if we obey God, somehow that, that we're missing out. This is how sin works and we run headlong into it. And then eventually the bill of sin comes due in our life. You know what I'm talking about, right? You hear someone else being talked about in a good light. Maybe they are being lifted up and you really don't care for that person. So you have to open your mouth and share some juicy piece of gossip that you heard about them. Sin. It's deceptive. Oh, I, I, I just shared the truth. That's what we like to call gossip. Oh, that's true. You struggle with self-esteem issues. You never really think too highly of yourself. And so you run around dragging everyone else down to your level. Someone said something to hurt you one time, a long time ago, and rather than forgive them, it's easier to be bitter and hateful and hurtful to other people. You're having marital problems. Your wife's nagging you. She doesn't meet your needs, maybe. But look over there. There's a, more, there's a younger, more beautiful woman. She's sensitive. She offers herself to you, and you hear the voice of the evil one whisper, she will meet your need. The sin is deceptive, including the sin of unbelief. Fifthly, unbelief and disobedience go hand in hand. Unbelief and disobedience go hand in hand. Look at verse 12. The author warns against unbelief. Then in verse 13, he does not change the subject, but warns against the deceitfulness of sin. Look down at verse 17 and 18. 
The author mentions those who sinned and were disobedient. Look at verse 19. The author says they are not able to enter the promised land because of what? Unbelief. The Bible over and over again uses faith and obedience interchangeably. All through the scripture, we are saved through faith alone, but saving faith always results in obedience to God. If you believe God, you obey God. If you do not believe God, you disobey God. Plain and simple. Unbelief and disobedience go hand in hand. And to avoid the sin of unbelief, you have to first understand it. And so hopefully these five things have helped you understand unbelief a little bit better and how terrible of a sin unbelief is. But we also must understand that we need to be careful. We need to be careful. Verse 12 starts off with these two words. Take care. Which is to say, be careful or watch carefully. We need to be on guard in order to avoid unbelief. You know what is easy? It's easy to go to hell. You know that? You don't have to be careful in order to go to hell. But you do have to be careful to go to heaven. You see, when we walk around not caring about our soul, and we could care less about the things of Christ, then we're swept away by our flesh and the devil and we're swept straight into hell. However, we're told to strive to enter into heaven. Vigilance is a mark of a true believer. The true believer takes care. They're careful. They don't, they don't treat sin flippantly. Their first thought is not, oh, it's okay. Once saved, always saved. No, examine, they examine their hearts. They make sure that they're in the faith. They take care. They pay attention that they won't have an evil, unbelieving heart. They make sure that they don't fall away from the living God. They are careful against the sin of unbelief. We have to be careful against the sin of unbelief. Not only do we need to be careful, but we need to walk closely with God, avoiding the ritual of religion. We need to walk closely with God. And I know that these aren't up on the screen because I have it right here in front of me. But uh, we need to walk closely with God, avoiding the ritual of religion. Being a follower of Christ is a matter of the heart. We looked at this last week. We talked about how not to have a hard heart. And you know what I've discovered in all my years of ministry? This is what I've discovered. I've been in ministry over 20 years. This is what I've discovered. It's really easy to put on a good show for other people. It's really easy to pretend to be someone you're not for a few hours a week. It's easy. It's easy to let people think, oh man, look, there's a godly person. We, we can come to church and we can sing the songs, right? And we can... We can put some money in the offering plate. We can take communion in church. We can pray. I can even get up here and preach a sermon and have that sermon look good. Or maybe it doesn't look good. I don't know. But somebody say amen and all that sort of thing. And, and everything seems to be going good. The point is I can follow the rituals of religion. But God is not looking at the outside. He's looking right into my heart. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Everything is laid bare before his eyes. He knows every doubt that I have. He knows every single struggle that I face. And he knows every single sinful thought that even enters my mind. I can't fool God. And if I want to keep from the sin of unbelief, then like I said last week, I must bring every thought into captivity. In obedience to Jesus Christ, I must confess my doubts to him. Say, God, I, I have doubts. I don't, I don't understand. I must confess my heartaches to him. I must confess my sin to him every single day so that I walk closely with God.
God. If I'm going to have a persevering faith, I must, church, I must avoid the sin of unbelief. And I know you're thinking, well, he's been talking a while and he's not even to point two yet. So point number two. Persevering faith practices exhortation. Persevering faith practices exhortation. Now, some people translate verse 13 here, and that word exhort, they translate that as simply encourage. But the word exhort goes beyond um, encourage. The Greek word for exhort is parakaleo, uh, and the prefix means, uh, the prefix uh, para means to come alongside, and the verb kaleo means to call out. So come alongside to call out the picture then is that we are to come alongside one another daily exhorting one another in the practice of Christian faith the idea is to earnestly support one another to help and to encourage a response or an action in them Christianity is not an individual but it is a team endeavor so if you do not know the nature of another believer's struggle, and if you do not share your struggles with other believers, then you're never able to put this command into practice. If you don't know someone else's struggles and you don't share your struggles, how are you going to exhort one another? You can't. And you know what the result is? We fall into sin. So let me break this down real quick for us, okay? Exhortation is the duty of every member of the body of Christ. Exhortation is the duty of every member of the body of Christ. I need you to hear this. This is not just uh, up to the pastor. He's got to go out there and exhortate people. He's, he's got to help people. And I can sit back. Oh, the pastor, he's, he's got it under control. He's the one that needs to help. He has to come alongside. He has to encourage or whatever it might be that falls under exhortation. Every member of the body of Christ is called to practice exhortation. There are times when, when, when I may need to exercise it as a pastor to someone. And there are times that I need someone to exercise exhortation to me as the pastor. But you know what's implicit in the command? That we have some sort of personal contact with other believers during the week. That we know what is going on in their life. Well enough to offer the ministry of exhortation when needed. You know what I found? You know, in this media or this day of social media and Facebook and Twitter and blah, 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 you know, Instagram and Snapchat and I don't know. You know, I found most of us really have no clue what's going on in one another's lives during the week. None. We have no clue. In fact, if, if most of you have a clue what's going on in my life, it's because you read my Facebook. Right? I mean, I've, I've gotten calls. Pastor, I read your Facebook. What's going on? I mean, I've, I've had that happen, and, and I don't mind that. I, I'm perfectly okay with that. But if it wasn't for Facebook, you would have no idea. You know Why? Well, one is because we don't offer that information to other people. So I don't offer the information. I don't say, hey, hey, brother, hey, sister, I'm struggling with this. I'm having a hard time with this. And so I don't offer it. And secondly, we just don't care. We just don't care. We don't try to get to know one another. Right? We have the like us for no more mentality. Here's my buddies. I'm all chummy chummy with them. I don't care about nobody else. Church, you have to understand, as a Christian, 
You are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. If you notice a brother or sister in Christ being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and you simply pay no attention to it and you sit back and you don't do anything about it, then you're not obeying this command. We are responsible for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are responsible for helping them in their struggles. You can't just keep your distance and say, oh, I'm just going to I'm just going to stay back. It's it, that's not what Christians are called to do. But we are called to exhort every member of the body of Christ is called to exhortation. Not only that, but exhortation is needed every single day. It says exhort one another every day. Now, you know what you know what drives me nuts sometimes? I know that's probably just me. It probably doesn't drive any of you guys nuts. But it's when someone tries to give you a word of exhortation for something that happened six months ago. Right? Or two years ago. Well, remember three years ago when you, uh, when you said this? No, really I don't. I don't even remember what I said last week, let alone three years ago. How often do you think Satan attacks? Every day. Every single day. We can't sit back and think to ourselves, oh, that, that person's going to get theirs. Wait till the pastor finds out what they did. Oh, he's going to deal with them. We can't sit back and say, well, it's not my responsibility. I, can't, I don't say, am I my brother's keeper? Because the answer is, yeah. Yeah, you are. You are your brother's keeper. And so when I see my brother or sister that needs a ministry of exhortation, then I give the ministry of exhortation. When I see the brother or sister talking about another brother or sister, I stop it right then and there. I say, hey, we don't need to have this conversation. This, this isn't healthy. It is your responsibility. If you see another Christian turning away from the Lord, you see another Christian in sin, it's your responsibility to say something. You think Satan lets up? You think he stops attacking? We don't wait six months. We don't wait a year. We don't sweep it under the rug. We go and talk to the person right then and right there, and we deal with the issue. We can't let up exhorting one another because we're called to do it every single day so that my faith may be strengthened and your faith may be strengthened, and we come alongside one another. And I'm not talking about preferences, okay? I'm talking about real issues. And we exhort one another and we love one another and we encourage one another and we watch what God does through that because we're called to do it. Exhortation is needed because sin is deceitful. I know I already touched on this some, but when you are deceived, you're not seeing clearly. You see, when someone's deceived, they think everything is, is fine. That there's no problem when everything is not fine. And there is a problem. I mean, if, you, if you've ever been deceived by someone, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? They're long gone before, before you even know what happened. I saw that a lot when I did Hurricane Katrina relief. Contractors would come in, they'd collect money, do a poor job, and disappear. And sometimes not even do a job at all. Can you imagine if someone was there to warn you before you fell into deception? I can think of specific areas in my life where I just wish somebody would have warned me. I just wish they would have said, you're... you're you're playing with fire. You're heading down the wrong track. You're going the wrong way. I wish they would have warned me. Instead of later going, <laughs> I saw that coming. 
Well, that's nice. Thanks for letting me know. Imagine if someone were to warn you. Think about it. we. I mean, we have reviews for, for everything these days, right? We, we can go on the internet. We can look at reviews. You can go check out a restaurant. Like, how many stars does this restaurant have on Google? Even churches are reviewed. Even First Baptist Church. I mean, you can go on Facebook and see how many stars First Baptist Church has and that sort of thing. And, and by the way, some people, before I was a pastor, they may, they may think this now that I am the pastor. I don't know. But they, they gave us like one star review on stuff. Wow. Nobody ever said anything bad about the pastor. Not yet. So, if, I mean, if you want to do that, you can go do that now. But, um, but we have reviews about everything. And someone will say, well, that place is awful. You don't want to go there. But sin doesn't come with reviews. It just tricks you. It deceives you. And we, we need one another to come alongside each other and encourage each other to steer clear of sin. We need, we need each other to say hard things to each other when needed or, or to help guide us in the right direction or to, or to wake us up from our deception. Sometimes we, we need someone to take that, you know, that not real two by four, but metaphoric two by four and conk us in the head and say, wake up. This is why Sunday school is so important. This is why Wednesday evening study is so important. This is why making friends within the body of Christ is so important. Because we need to be exhorting one another every single day in order to keep from sin. Persevering faith avoids the sin of unbelief. It practices exhortation. Persevering faith holds firm to salvation. Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence from him or our confidence from him to the end. That verse is interesting. And the reason it's interesting is because as we look at the verse. For we have come to share in Christ if. That's what makes it interesting. That if clause. This is not the first time we experienced it either. Look back at verse 6. We are his house. Right? It says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. There it is again. That verse does not say that we will become Christ's house if we hold fast to our hope. It says we are his house if we hold fast to our hope. In other words, to hold fast to our hope is the demonstration or the evidence that we are now his house. Verse 14 is similar, which I'll get into in just a minute. But before we go, go there, first must understand that we are united to Christ through salvation. The verse says that we have to share in Christ. Paul, in his letter, has emphasized our union with Christ when, when he calls it, uh, in, or in his letters, when he calls it in Christ. When God saves us, he places us in Christ. And so that everything that is true of Christ is true of us. This is how Paul can say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only way we have access to God the Father is because of this fact that we are in Christ. Because you and I are placed in Christ. If we have faith in Christ, then we are placed in Christ and we have access to God the Father. Our salvation is what unites us with Christ. Now with that said, for believers, though salvation is certain, it is not automatic. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
We have to pay attention to the wording, just like verse 6. It does not say that we will come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Rather, it says that we have come to share in the past. We have come to share if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, when we hold fast to our original confidence, it is a verification that we have come to share in Christ. It reveals that we truly are saved. The if focuses on our responsibility. We have come to share in Christ is a reference to faith in Christ for salvation. Saving faith is not a one-time action and we're done with it. If we have saving faith, we continue believing. It is our responsibility to hold fast to our faith. Paul does the very same thing. If we look at the book of Philippians, he says that God who began a good work in us will complete it. But at the same time, he exhorts us to work out our salvation, keeping in mind that all the while it is God at work in us that causes us to be able to work out our salvation in the first place. In other words, just because we read a promise in scripture that our salvation is sure or secure, in no way does it give us the right to assume that we have no responsibility in the process. Those who truly believe in Christ will hold firm in him to the end. So what if we don't hold firm? What if someone lets go of their faith? What if someone turns back to the world and they're content to stay there? The answer is not that they are no longer sharing in Christ. But the answer is that they never came to share in Christ in the first place. Read it again. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So if we do not do that, then we have no share in Christ. We then have never truly trusted in him as savior. Now, true believers, yes, may go through times of doubt. They may go through, through uh, periods of, of struggle. True believers go through those, those times of struggling with a specific sin sometimes. But true believers can't remain there. God's discipline will bring them back. If they do remain there, then they're not a true believer. Because the Holy Spirit has not taken up residence in their life. So if persevering faith avoids the sin of unbelief, it practices exhortation, it holds fast to salvation, and lastly, persevering faith is personal. In verses 15 through 19, the author of Hebrews comes back to the story of Israel in the wilderness, and he again is quoting from Psalm chapter 95. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. And then he asks six penetrating personal questions given in three parts. The first question of each pair asks the question and the second question answers the question. The point of the question to make it personal. The point is that the readers We'll do some soul searching. The point is that when we read this, we will search ourselves. It parallels the situation of Israel. And he ties it right back to the idea of unbelief. The first set, verse 16. Who were they who heard and rebelled? The answer was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? The point, this applies to every professing believer. Everyone that died in the desert began with great expectations, but most of them then began grumbling and disbelieving God and therefore died in the wilderness. It is as if he's saying, this applies to you. Even if we are true believers, take caution. John Owen said, the best of saints needs to be cautioned against the worst of evils. So take caution that you do not start off well with great expectation, only to succumb to grumbling, disbelieving, and ultimately dying. The second set, verse 17. And with whom 
Was he angry for 40 years? The answer, was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? The point, the men who angered God for 40 years were those who did not believe that God could provide for them. If we are not true believers, our sin in the face of knowledge will incur God's judgment. And if we are true believers, it will bring strong discipline. The Israelites left Egypt with great hope. But hope is no substitute for belief. The third set of verses. The question. Verse 18. And to whom did God swear they would not enter his rest? The answer. Those who were disobedient. The point. Those who received God's judgment in the wilderness were not only unbelieving, but they were disobedient. You cannot separate unbelief from disobedience. It's impossible. When unbelief goes unchecked, it will quickly lead to disobedience. And unbelief is much more acceptable than blatant sin, especially socially. We like to say things like this, well, well, I struggle to understand that. I struggle to understand why God would do this. Or I, I struggle to understand this in Scripture. When we know God's word is true, when we know we need to turn from our sin, we just don't want to turn. Those who were disobedient did not enter God's rest. Were those who did not enter because of unbelief. They're one and the same. They were disobedient and they didn't believe. Look at verse 19. Because of unbelief, they could not appropriate God's blessing. Our faith will either open the blessing of God, of God's eternal rest, or our unbelief bars us from it. If we're going to persevere in our faith, it must be personal. We must look to the story of Israel in the wilderness. We must see their sin of unbelief and see that it kept them from entering the promised land. And understand we must avoid it at all cost. Here's what I want you to understand this morning. The warning that we have laid out here in this chapter of Hebrews is here for us to affirm whether our faith is sincere or not. It's there to, for you to affirm, is my faith sincere or not? It is a way for us to test our faith. It is a way for you to ask yourself, do I have persevering faith? It is to say that I must take care. I must pay attention. I must work at my faith. These verses are not saying that a saved person can go out and reharden their hearts and be lost. Nor are they saying that a believer can change into an unbeliever. These verses are not even saying that if a true believer could commit apostasy and walk away from God, that they would be lost. That's not what they're saying. These warnings are given to us so that we would be on guard against the deceitfulness of the human heart. They are given under the assumption that some might be among the Hebrew church or even the church in Washington, Illinois that are showing Christ on the outside but will in the end prove to have had all along an evil, unbelieving heart. The point is, some people can be in the church and look like they know Christ but not know Christ. Remember the words of Jesus where he taught these things over and over again to warn against false teachers. For example, when he said in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will come to me, Lord, Lord. 
Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. These people are prophesying. They're casting out demons. When's the last time you cast out a demon? They're casting out demons. Doing many mighty works in the name of Jesus. And yet it does not prove that Jesus knows them. It's possible to do these things. And yet have an unchanged heart. So I ask you this morning. Is Jesus your hope? Is he your confidence? Is Jesus your everything? The goal is that this admonition given in Hebrews would then cause those in the church to repent and be saved if they're not true believers. The goal is that people in the church in Washington, Illinois would examine their heart and repent and be saved if they're not true believers. And that they would be aware of the danger that would, cause, uh, that, that would come to believers that could cause or have an unbelieving heart. I urge you this morning, First, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, today you would do so. Secondly, I urge you that you would take this passage to heart. That you would consider this morning whether your life matches up with what was said here in this passage of Scripture. That you would ask, am I working out my faith? Am I trying to avoid the sin of unbelief? Am I, am I getting together with other believers? And am I, are we exhorting one another? Am I allowing people to speak truth into my life? And am I speaking truth into other people's lives? Are you holding firm to your salvation? Finally, is it personal? Do you internalize that sin of unbelief kept Israel from entering the promised land? And we have to be on guard. Are you on guard this morning? What are you doing? Are you doing any of the things that we just mentioned? And so, well, well, pastor, how do I apply this to my life? Are you in Sunday school? You come Wednesday, Wednesday evening? How are you guarding against sin of unbelief? How involved are you? Are you meeting with other Christians? What's your conversation like? Do you actually have godly conversation? You talk about the ball game, the weather, and everything else except for your Christian faith. How are you guarding against the sin of unbelief? Because the minute you let your guard down, you're just that much closer to just being disobedient and that much closer to having a hard heart and that much closer to just walking down the wrong path. If you don't know Christ, I want to encourage you this morning to respond to this message. If you do know him, I want to encourage you to respond to this message if you're struggling in any area, if you need to apply this. If you need prayer, I'm going to be standing down front. I'd love to pray with you. You can pray in your pew. You can hang around afterwards. You can pray with me afterwards. You can talk with me afterwards. Whatever you need to do. I encourage you to respond to this message. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. And just want to encourage you to respond this morning. Let's close with prayer.